Amen. This morning, we celebrate our freedom, but around the world, they celebrate freedom in Christ every Sunday morning, and that is amazing. So good morning. We're going to continue. We're not talking anything about freedom from here on out, so the segue is painful and rough, but it's what it is. We're continuing our series of discovery. What's important to God as you return from a time of separation? Uh, Judah returned to the land, and now they faced the last message that they were going to get from God through a prophet. They didn't know it, but we know it now for 400 years. That's a long time of silence. So as they began to, to face these 400 years, what's important to God? Well, God, he's already said, he doesn't want our leftovers in worship. Don't bring your junk and expect me to be pleased. They wanted the idea that, you know, what we're doing, maybe it's not all that sinful, or maybe we can just do what we want and get away with it because does God really care? That's where they were. Last week, we looked at an area which might seem rather surprising to us. He said, you know what I really care about? I really care about your marriages. Malachi challenged them with the question, is God at the center of your home? Because God cares a lot about your relationships, and especially your marriage. He cares that your most intimate relationships be with people who are in the faith. He cares that you remain faithful to your spouse. And so this morning we're going to stop and we're going to let, let Malachi give us a little bit of premarital counseling or postmarital counseling. What are the foundation stones on which all of this is based? If you have your sermon notes, take them out. If you don't have them, they are available digitally with your phone on your QR code and you can just type and you can, you know, you can text people during church and we'll think you're taking sermon notes. <laughs> That's between you and God. Remember point number one, God doesn't want your leftovers, though. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> Next Sunday, we'll pick it up and, and keep going through Malachi. And uh, it's the uh, one more thing that, that really matters to God in this last book. A man and a woman had been married for about 60 years, six decades or so, and they shared everything together, almost everything. The wife kept a hidden box, a shoebox in her closet, and she told her husband when they first got married, don't you open this, don't go near it, just leave it there, that's mine. And he actually never did, he never thought about it. But one day, toward the end of life, she was getting sick, and, and the end was obviously inside, and he was trying to get it, everything together, and he, he came across the box, and he said, honey, what about this box? And she said, well, bring it to me, and we'll talk about it. And when he opened it, he found two crocheted dollies and a stack of bills that, that equaled $25,000. He's like, well, this is interesting. Explain this to me. She said, well, before I got married, my grandmother, she told me that the secret to a happy marriage is to never argue. She said, if I ever got angry with you, just keep quiet and crochet. So I did. And the man was like, yes, there's only two doilies in there. How sweet. He was very moved when she said, 
He said, so, so you've only been mad at me twice. That's wonderful. She said, oh, no, no. The $25,000 is the money I sold, uh, the money I got from selling all the rest of the dolly, doilies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, my joke telling has waned. I didn't quite get that right, but you got the point. About their homes, last Sunday we learned that God says, I am more interested in what's going on within your marriage than, than really what's going on within the, within the temple, within the church. And we said that marriage is not fair and it's not easy. We said that love is a choice. It's not an emotion. You can choose to love anyone. And marriage has to be a pursuit of holiness, not happiness. And these practical suggestions, they're very nice, but they're not really helpful unless you're building upon a foundation that's biblical. And so there are five foundations this morning out of two verses in Malachi. Verses chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, Malachi chapter 2, the last book before Matthew. If you go left in your Bible, when you get Matthew, you'll find it short, so don't go too fast. Verses 14 and 15. Let's read them. Malachi 2, 14. You ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Five foundational truths on which to build a marriage. Number one, God is the witness to your vows. He says in verse 14, you ask why. Why are you upset with this, God? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her. A witness means to testify or to record. It was used in the Old Testament like for, an, in, for inanimate objects who would stand as a testimony or a witness to what was agreed upon. Uh, they did that between Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. They heaped up a bunch of stones and they were to remember when they saw these stones this agreement. Judges 11, verse 10, says the elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. God himself, we will certainly do as you say. God's going to witness this. In the midst of his suffering, Job 16, 19, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on, is on high. God's the witness. In, in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan and David decide to be friends forever, and it needs to be witnessed. And it says, the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. And now Malachi tells us what? That God is the witness at every single wedding. God's the witness. When you get married, you're vowing to be faithful to the rest of your life, to your spouse. And you're doing so, God says, in the presence, in his own very presence. It's as if God is giving Expert eyewitness testimony. You know, I heard you promise that, and you did it before a bunch of people. Your marriage is not just recorded at L.A. County or whatever county. It's recorded here. I know it. You're married. It starts right here. God is the witness to your vows. Number two, God, God says that second foundational point is your spouse is your partner. He says, you have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. Proverbs 2.17 provides a, a nice parallel to this. 
when you know you don't break those vows in describing a wandering wife solomon writes who has left the partner of her youth and ignored what the covenant she made before god you've got to realize in, in a marriage that your part that that your spouse is your partner goes back to the original design of marriage back in Genesis 1. God sums up everything and he says, what about creation? How oh, it's good. Everything is good. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now you do know in Genesis there are two accounts of creation. Why? I'm not going to answer that today. You'll have to, we'll have to do a Genesis series if you don't know. There's the first one and then there's the second one. And at the end of the second one, it says this in verse chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good. Uh-oh. Everything else has been good, good, good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. A helper. A partner. A companion. Literally, it means one who answers to or corresponds to. One who speaks the same language you do. And when God says he will create a helper... I know what you're thinking. You picture someone who sweeps the floor and makes the beds, cooks the meals, and in general does the housework while you get to sit on your wonderful recliner with the clicker. <laughs> That's not what this word means. In the Old Testament, this word helper is used of God. God is our helper. He doesn't sit on the recliner and we doing all this stuff. Helper means one who supplies what is lacking in another person. You see, God made Adam to do something that Adam couldn't do all alone. So he had to make him a helper. It's amazing truth about marriage that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In a marriage, one plus one, the goal isn't one plus one equals two. The whole point is one plus one equals 37. Because you need each other. And the result is out of proportion to the talents and the abilities you each have. And if you're married, your partner is the one who corresponds to you. You're not better than your wife. You're not better than your husband. You're in partnership. You're teammates. Are you treating each other as teammates? Can you say that you're friends with your spouse? If not, you, you need to work on the friendship part of this. Spend time together. Have some fun. If you stop having fun, you don't check out. You figure out how you can have fun together again. And get ready to go through some struggles. Friends do that. And oftentimes these struggles are the impetus to intimacy. When you partner with one another and you live in partnership with God, you, you can go through anything because you're in this together. Which leads to the third building block in Malachi. Number three, marriage means we're soulmates, not roommates. Marriage is this binding covenant of commitment. The text says, the wife of your marriage covenant. And I think you have to understand, when they hear that word covenant back in Malachi's day, what are they thinking of? Well, they're thinking about a ceremony that would often occur with two, you know, nomadic tribes years before. And if I promise you my son or you promise me your daughter, let's make this official. And the way you made that official is that you would take some animals and you would 
cut them in half, long ways. And you'd put half the animal on this side and half the animal on that side, and you'd do a row of these, and then together you walk through this. And what you're saying is, if we break this agreement, this should happen to this. And that's what God did with Abraham. He took the three animals, the, the heifer, the goat, and the, and the lamb, and he had Abraham cut them in half and lay them out on, on the side. And when they do that, you know, we don't kill a lot of animals in our culture. Well, we do, but we don't do it. You know what I'm saying? It's a bloody mess. And so you, you're walking through a bloody mess. And, and God did what? He put Abraham to sleep. And God walked through because it was an unconditional covenant. God says, I am keeping this covenant. You don't have to walk through it. I'll always keep my side. And a covenant is an, ex an exclusive, solemn, it's a binding agreement between two people. Ezekiel 16 compares God's covenant to his people to a marriage covenant. He says, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. We're in this relationship. And in the eyes of God, marriage is a covenant of committed companionship. Unfortunately, our culture today, you know, we don't say, you know, until death do us part. Well, we'll we just mean until uh, as long as we both shall love. The Hallmark card says it all. I can't promise forever, but I can promise you today. There's security. Because Hollywood and the culture ha has taken love and made it an emotion and a physical act. But it's more than that. It's a covenant commitment. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. It's unconditional. That means you love your spouse, not for what he or she does. You know, you don't need to say, I love you because. Unconditional love says, I love you, period. You don't need anything else. Regardless, always. It's a commitment. That means that you love ultimately as a decision based on the vows that you made when you got married. It means you stay committed when your needs are unfulfilled and your relationship seems sterile or sour. You, you, you can live this out, this commitment as it's fleshed out in a lifestyle of servanthood. You've got to put the needs of the other person above your own. That's why marriage is hard. There are certain subjects you never talk about in a marriage, ever. Divorce. Not even going to go there. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Neither one of you are perfect. Hello. We all make mistakes. We all let our spouses down. So maybe we should cut each other some slack every once in a while? Thornton Wilder's 1942 drama called The Skin of Our Teeth, the wife said this. It's amazing. She said, I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults. 
and the promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married, and it was the promise that made the marriage. Ecclesiastes 5 says, God takes your vows, your promise, very seriously. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Do it. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead into sin. And do not protest the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and, 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 and destroy the work of your hands? God takes vows seriously. If you're married, are you ready, willing to reaffirm this unconditional commitment to an imperfect spouse? Will you pledge to keep that covenant, that promise, as long as you both shall live? God says, you're soulmates. You're not just roommates. Now, we come to Matthew, I wish, Malachi 2.15, the most difficult verse to translate in the entire book of Malachi. It says in the NIV, has not the one God made you? You're going to have to put your thinking caps on here, okay? Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Here's the problem. You can read that first phrase one of two different ways. You can, it can read, did not one make them? Did not one make them? Or did he, did not he, the Lord, make one? Those are two very different ideas. The first one really looks at the sovereignty of God in this whole situation. The second one has a lot of possibilities. What's this one that God made? Well, it could be one wife. It could be one child of Abraham, or meaning Isaac. It could be one flesh, man and woman, and one in marriage. Or he could have made one nation. You've got a lot of options. The second part of this verse is even harder. It literally reads, And a remnant of the Spirit, big S or little s, to him, and a remnant of the Spirit to him. The NIV, if you have the NIV, interprets this, um, this remnant as flesh. Him thinking that, that Malachi is thinking back to, to Genesis 2 and the, and, and the man and the woman becoming one and one flesh in marriage. And that's possible. But perhaps here, it's better to see Malachi contrasting the faithfulness of God to Israel his one covenant people, and their marital unfaithfulness, which was the subject in verse 10. And if you follow that interpretation, the one, am I lost you yet? The one of verse 15 is Israel as their one people. That's very significant to them. They're back in the land. How many nations were they before they went to, to captivity? Two, north and the south, Israel, Judah. He's brought back how many nations? One. One people, one nation. They're back in the land. So perhaps he's really saying, has not, 
Has not God made one people? And has he not made the people one? Kind of a double entendre. The second phrase could read, and he made them his spiritual remnant. He's given them his spirit. This could be filling them with his spirit. I think he's looking down the corridors of time saying one day that's really going to be true. And you're going to live like that. But why was God concerned about the unity of his people, these people being one? It says, what do you seek? Malachi's clear. I seek what? Godly offspring. Literally, a seed of God. A, a people, corporately, heir of the covenant, the seed. And Malachi seems to be driving home the point that if you marry outside the faith, and if you dissolve good marriages to do so, what happens to the offspring? Where is the chance for godly heirs? And by choosing one as the means of bringing blessing to the entire world, he wants to make sure that that nation, that people, is a righteous people, that it might be that beacon of truth and hope on the planet. So therefore, I see Malachi as warning this nation, this one nation, to treat marriage very carefully because they're treating what? Treacherously, the, the eternal plan of God to bless the world through this one people. And so he says, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Be careful. Be alert to protect marriage because it's important. So that's been a bit of a nod. I, I hope you traced. It took me th three days to figure out what was going on in this verse. So if you have questions with it, go see Ken. That's all I have to say. <laughs> that leads to, to two more foundation stones of marriage. Number four is this. It leads to two more, but we've already done three, right? Okay, so we're following. Okay. Number four, God's intention for marriage is for intimate unity. It's what he wants. See, marriage isn't just about avoiding sexual sin. It's about intimacy. Now, some of you, you're finding all of this, you know, way too late. You, you don't need this. You've lived through a failure, and there's no going back. But for you, the message of the Word of God is very clear. Be sure your lives are right with God today. That means you've got to acknowledge your responsibility in the dissolution of a covenant. And you need to determine with all of your heart that, that today you're going to walk with God in obedience. One writer put it this way, marriage is the merciless revealer, the great white searchlight turned on the darkest places of the human nature. Marriage isn't just about populating the earth. Marriage is about reconciliation Marriage is about holiness. Marriage exposes our sin. It builds within our lives some perseverance. It builds character and a servant heart. And marriage can make us more aware than ever of the presence of God and teach us to respect one another and what true love really means.
in the New Testament, the primary purpose for marriage is really to model God's love for the church. And if that's true, then I need to enter my marriage and experience my marriage with, with a renewed sense of motivation. That motivation, it's hinted at in 2 Corinthians 5.9, which says, so we make it our goal to please him. See, the, the consuming passion of all of our lives needs to be, we want to please the Savior. And pleasing God has to be the driving decision, uh, force behind every decision that we make. And so it's true in marriage. Our first purpose in marriage is to please God. The problem is we're way too selfish. And we enter into marriage asking, oh, how am I going to be happy? This isn't making me happy. And we're supposed to be asking, what will make God happy? In this situation, what makes him happy? And in case we miss the point, Paul just drives it home. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I have no other choice as a Christian but to live for Christ. Verse 16, Paul goes on, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. The very nature of Christ's work is one of reconciliation, bringing people who are angry back together again with God. And our response is to be reconcilers ourselves. That's our role. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the end of hatred. You substitute hatred for peace and good. We're talking about salvation. But here's the point. We cannot talk with any integrity about, the end, about ending a relationship of hatred with God and the dawning of peace and goodwill if our marriages are marked by hatred and fighting. What then becomes our message to the world? If my marriage contradicts my message, I have sabotaged the goal of my life to be pleasing to Christ and faithfully fulfill the ministry of reconciliation. See, this is a divine transaction. When a man and woman become one flesh, their hearts and their lives are knit together. God has glued them together. They have become one, which is why divorce is so devastating. It leaves not two people, but two fractions of people. And just so you know, the pastor can have illustrations, not just the youth pastor. I use this every premarital class. We'll see if it actually works. Two people glued together by a marriage. 
you pull them apart, I put a lot of glue. Too much glue, obviously. <laughs> but the point is, too much glue. Can you have a marriage with too much glue? You're never going to be red again. You will always have blotches of blue glued to your life. You can't separate it again. Don't assume that you will. There will be weddings and grandchildren and life that you must live together no matter what. God's intention is for a lifelong intimate unity. Number five. I guess youth pastors can be the only ones that do illustrations. <laughs> Marriage is a greenhouse for growing godly children. He says, and what does this one, what, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Here's the goal he's been heading to. Malachi's been driving this. Keep the covenant community intact. Don't destroy it. Because that's the way God set it up. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. And as you look at the foundation of marriage, let's understand, first of all, that some of you wish you could have children, but God didn't give them to you. And that there's others who've decided we don't want kids. All of that's okay. Whatever your situation, hear this. You are a family. Whether you have children or not, you're not a family once you have children. And don't let the church put pressure on you. Forgive us for being insensitive or looking down at you as if something's wrong. It's not. But what is Malachi saying here? He is saying that God has designed that children grow best in an environment of a committed covenant marriage. And I also understand some of you are having to do this alone. And I want you to know I have the highest respect for you. I don't know how you can do that. And may God bless you for laying aside other things to make the choices to raise the children. And while we're confessing, forgive us too for calling your families broken. They're not broken. While you've experienced incredible pain, you're not broken. And you are not ruined. God is using you to shepherd and train your children no matter what the circumstances in your home. So let's all realize that the best way for kids to come to Christ is through the influence of godly families. In fact, we could say that the family is the school in which God teaches his children the ways of life. Deuteronomy 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, as you're doing life, we apply the scriptures. Parents, we're not just raising kids, but we're discipling our daughters to be women who are sold out to God. We are setting spiritual standards for our sons so that when they grow up, they can be fully devoted to God. And how do you do that? <laughs> Some of us lucked out, to be honest. But you pray with them and for them. 
You read the Bible with them. You use these teachable moments as you're driving. You spend time alone with them. You have the guts to discipline them when they need it. But you do so with love and grace. You use advantages that the, 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 and the tools that the church provides, Awana, Sunday School, VBS. You watch your words. You don't squash them. And the spirit of your kids by calling them brats or saying things like, I wish I'd never had you or, huh, you're driving me crazy. Are you kidding? We are stewards and shepherds of this little church that meets in our home. And our children do not belong to us. They belong to God. They are his property. And our job is not to raise independent children. But men and women who will become dependent upon God and God alone. That's not easy. But God says that's your job, so he will equip us to do that. So there is Malachi's foundation for marriage. God has witnessed your vows. Recommit yourself to be forever faithful to your husband or to your wife. Your spouse is your partner. Is there some way you can demonstrate that partnership this week? Is there a project you could tackle together? Marriage means you're soulmates, not roommates. Maybe you need to renew that commitment. God's intention is for intimate unity. What's blocking that unity in your marriage these days? Can you determine to solve it? And marriage is a greenhouse for growing godly children. What, what can you change about your parenting? Turn over, maybe, maybe it's on the same page. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. In verse 1, he's described the ministry of John the Baptist. And then he says, I'm going to send you Jesus after John. And he writes this, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But what does verse 2 say about that messenger? He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, when he comes, you're going to need a lot of cleaning up. Like us, they needed to be purified. They needed to change in their relationships and especially in their marriages. And the refiner's fire was needed to purify their hearts and their lives. That means you turn up the heat and the junk, the dross, comes to the top and you scrape it off and you fire it up again. You see, God adds the heat to our lives so that we can grow because he is much more interested in our character than the amount of heat in our lives. He takes the launderer's soap and he cleanses us. Rick Warren puts it this way in The Purpose Driven Life. Your problems are not punishment. They are wake-up calls from a loving God. God is not mad at you. He is mad about you. He will do whatever it takes to bring you back into fellowship with him. Same thing the prophet says to the people. Take heed, in verse 16, be on your guard against such treachery. 
To be on guard against that treachery, you need to do, know two things, consider two things. Yet knowing and agreeing with the plan of God, what he's doing big picture with this covenant and with his people. And then knowing what he's trying to do in your marriage and in mine. To fulfill the first, to agree with the covenant plan and what God wants to do, means we're committed to worship and serving in holiness and righteousness. To fulfill the second, you've got to know that marriage is a covenant. It's been confirmed by God. And if you truly see how the marriage covenant fits into the covenant of God, that he's made with his people, then you will marry within the faith and you will give all diligence to preserve that marriage no, ma no matter what comes. And no marriage is perfect. But we keep getting called back to the standard. And Malachi says you need to listen carefully so that the plan of God is preserved. Do everything in your power to do it. And it's going to take a lot of work. And you're not always going to get a lot of support because this world looks at things so very differently than we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your faithfulness to us. This covenant relationship that we have with you. It is that relationship, that mark of your faithfulness, which needs to be the impetus in our lives to live life your way, not ours. And that means a lot of different things in this room. But may the power of the Holy Spirit use the clarity of the word of God to help us know what needs to change this week. In Jesus' name, amen.